Book Two, Chapter Four of the Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Book Two, The Arrival, Chapter Four. Eustacia is led on to an adventure. In the evening of this last day of expectation, which was the twenty-third of December, Eustacia was at home alone. She had passed the recent hour in lamenting over a rumour newly come to her ears, that Yobright's visit to his mother was to be of a short duration, and would end some time the next week. "'Naturally,' she said to herself, "'a man in the full swing of his activities in a gay city could not afford to linger long on Egdon Heath.' that she would behold face to face the owner of the awakening voice within the limits of such a holiday was most unlikely, unless she were to haunt the environs of his mother's house like a robin, to do which was difficult and unseemly. The customary expedient of provincial girls and men in such circumstances is church-going. In an ordinary village or country town one can safely calculate that, either on Christmas Day or the Sunday contiguous, any native home for the holidays who has not through age or ennui lost the appetite for seeing and being seen will turn up in some pew or other shining with hope self-consciousness and new clothes thus the congregation on christmas morning is mostly a tousseau collection of celebrities who have been born in the neighbourhood hither the mistress left neglected at home all the year, can steal and observe the development of the returned lover who has forgotten her, and think, as she watches him over her prayer-book, that he may throb with renewed fidelity when novelties have lost their charm, and hither a comparatively recent settler, like Eustacia, may betake herself to scrutinize the person of a native son who left home before her advent upon the scene, and consider if the friendship of his parents be worth cultivating during his next absence in order to secure a knowledge of him on his next return. But these tender schemes were not feasible among the scattered inhabitants of Egdon Heath. In name they were parishioners, but virtually they belonged to no parish at all. People who came to these few isolated houses to keep Christmas with their friends remained in their friends' chimney-corners, drinking mead and other comforting liquors, till they left again for good and all. Rain, snow, ice, mud everywhere around, they did not care to trudge two to three miles to sit wet-footed and splash to the nape of their necks among those who, though in some measure neighbours, lived close to the church and entered it clean and dry. Eustacia knew it was ten to one that Clem Yobright would go to no church at all during his few days of leave, and that it would be a waste of labour for her to go driving the pony and gig over a bad road in hope to see him there. It was dusk, and she was sitting by the fire in the dining-room, or hall, which they occupied at this time of year in preference to the parlour because of its large hearth, constructed for turf fires, a fuel the captain was partial to in the winter season. The only visible articles in the room were those on the window-sill, which showed their shapes against the low sky the middle article being the old hourglass, and the other two a pair of ancient British urns, which had been dug from a barrow near, and were used as flower-pots for two razor-leaved cactuses. Somebody knocked at the door. The servant was out, so was her grandfather. The person, after waiting a minute, came in, and tapped at the door of the room. 
there, said Eustacia. Please, Captain Vi, will you let us? Eustacia arose and went to the door. I cannot allow you to come in so boldly. You should have waited. The Captain said I might come in without any fuss, was answered in a lad's pleasant voice. Oh, did he? said Eustacia, more gently. What do you want, Charlie? Please will you tell your grandfather to let us use his fuel house to try our parts in tonight at seven o'clock. What? Are you one of the Egdon mummers for this year? Yes, miss. The captain used to let the old mummers practice here. I know it. Yes, you may use the fuel house if you like, said Eustacia languidly. The choice of Captain Vy's fuel house as the scene of rehearsal was dictated by the fact that his dwelling was nearly in the centre of the heath. The fuel house was as roomy as a barn and was a most desirable place for such a purpose. The lads who formed the company of players lived at different scattered points around, and by meeting in this spot the distances to be traversed by all the comers would be about equally proportioned. For mummers and mumming Eustacia had the greatest contempt. The mummers themselves were not afflicted with any such feeling for their art, though at the same time they were not enthusiastic. A traditional pastime is to be distinguished from a mere revival in no more striking feature than in this, that while in the revival all is excitement and fervor, the survival is carried on with a stolidity and absence of stir which sets one wondering why a thing that is done so perfunctorily should be kept up at all. Like Balaam and other unwilling prophets, the agents seemed moved by an inner compulsion to say and do their allotted parts whether they will or no. This unweeting manner of performance is the true ring by which, in this refurbishing age, a fossilized survival may be known from a spurious reproduction. The piece was the well-known play of St. George, and all who were behind the scenes assisted in the preparations, including the women of each household. Without the cooperation of sisters and sweethearts, the dresses were likely to be a failure, but on the other hand, this class of assistance was not without its drawbacks. The girls could never be brought to respect tradition in designing and decorating the armor. They insisted on attaching loops and bows of silk and velvet in any situation pleasing to their taste. Gorget, gusset, bassinet, cuirass, gauntlet, sleeve, all alike in the view of these feminine eyes, were practicable spaces whereon to sew scraps of flattering color. It might be that Joe, who fought on the side of Christendom, had a sweetheart, and that Jim, who fought on the side of the Moslem, had one likewise. During the making of the costumes it would come to the knowledge of Joe's sweetheart that Jim's was putting brilliant silk scallops at the bottom of her lover's surcoat, in addition to the ribbons of the visor, the bars of which, being invariably formed of colored strips about half an inch wide hanging before the face, were mostly of that material. Joe's sweetheart straightway placed brilliant silk on the scallops of the hem in question, and, going a little further, added ribbon tufts to the shoulder-pieces. Jim's, not to be outdone, would affix bows and rosettes everywhere. The result was that, in the end, the valiant soldier of the Christian army was distinguished by no peculiarity of accoutrement from the Turkish knight, and what was worse, on a casual view, St. George himself might be mistaken for his deadly enemy, the Saracen. The geysers themselves, though inwardly regretting this confusion of persons, could not afford to offend those by whose assistance they so largely profited, and the innovations were allowed to stand. There was, it is true, 
a limit to this tendency to uniformity. The leech or doctor preserved his character intact, his darker habiliments, peculiar hat, and the bottle of physic slung under his arm could never be mistaken, and the same might be said of the conventional figure of Father Christmas, with his gigantic club, an older man, who accompanied the band as general protector in long night journeys from parish to parish, and was bearer of the purse. Seven o'clock, the hour of the rehearsal, came round, and in a short time Eustacia could hear voices in the fuel-house. To dissipate in some trifling measure her abiding sense of the murkiness of human life, she went to the inne, or lean-to, shed, which formed the root-store of their dwelling, and abutted on the fuel-house. Here was a small rough hole in the mud-wall, originally made for pigeons, through which the interior of the next shed could be viewed. A light came from it now, and Eustacia stepped upon a stool to look in upon the scene. On a ledge in the fuel-house stood three tall rushlights, and by the light of them seven or eight lads were marching about, haranguing and confusing each other, in endeavours to perfect themselves in the play. Humphrey and Sam, the furs and tough-cutters, were there looking on, so also was Timothy Fairway, who leant against the wall, and prompted the boys from memory, interspersing among the set words remarks and anecdotes of the superior days when he and others were the Egdon Mummers elect, that these lads were now. "'Well, ye be as well up to it as ever ye will be,' he said. "'Not that such mumming would have passed in our time. Harry as the Saracen should strut a bit more, and John needn't holler his inside out. Beyond that, perhaps, you'll do.' have you got all your clothes ready we shall by monday your first outing will be monday night i suppose yes at mrs yobright's oh mrs yobright's what makes her want to see you i should think a middle-aged woman was tired of mumming she's got up a bit of a party cause tis the first christmas that her son klim has been home for a long time to be sure to be sure her party i am going myself i almost forgot it upon my life eustacia's face flagged there was to be a party at the obrights she naturally had nothing to do with it she was a stranger to all such local gatherings and had always held them as scarcely appertaining to her sphere but had she been going what an opportunity would have been afforded her of seeing the man whose influence was penetrating her like summer sun to increase that influence was coveted excitement to cast it off might be to regain serenity to leave it as it stood was tantalizing the lads and men prepared to leave the premises and eustacia returned to her fireside she was immersed in thought but not for long in a few minutes the lad charlie who had come to ask permission to use the place returned with the key to the kitchen. Eustacia heard him, and opening the door into the passage, said, "'Charlie, come here.' The lad was surprised. He entered the front room not without blushing, for he, like many, had felt the power of this girl's face and form. She pointed to a seat by the fire, and entered the other side of the chimney-corner herself. It could be seen in her face that whatever motive she might have had in asking the youth indoors would soon appear. "'Which part do you play, Charlie? The Turkish knight, do you not?' inquired the beauty, looking across the smoke of the fire to him on the other side. "'Yes, miss, the Turkish knight,' he replied, diffidently. "'Is yours a long part?' 
nine speeches about can you repeat them to me if so i should like to hear them the lad smiled into the glowing turf and began here i come a turkish knight who learns in turkish lands to fight continuing the discourse throughout the scenes to the concluding catastrophe of his fall by the hand of st george eustacia had occasionally heard the part recited before when the lad ended she began precisely in the same words and ranted on without hitch or divergence till she too reached the end it was the same thing yet how different like in form it had the added softness and finish of a raphael after perugino which while faithfully reproducing the original subject entirely distances the original art charlie's eyes rounded with surprise well you be a clever lady he said in admiration i've been about three weeks learning mine i have heard it before she quietly observed now would you do anything to please me charlie i do a good deal miss would you let me play your part for one night oh miss but you woman's gown you couldn't i can get boys clothes at least all that would be wanted besides the mumming dress what should i have to give you to lend me your things to let me take your place for an hour or two on monday night and on no account to say a word about who or what i am you would of course have to excuse yourself from playing that night and to say that somebody a cousin of miss vyse would act for you the other mummers have never spoken to me in their lives so that it would be safe enough and if it were not i should not mind now what must i give you to agree to this half a crown the youth shook his head five shillings he shook his head again money won't do it he said brushing the iron head of the fire-dog with the hollow of his hand what will then charlie said eustacia in a disappointed tone you know what you forbade me at the maypole in miss murmured the lad without looking at her and still stroking the fire-dog's head yes said eustacia with a little more hauteur you wanted to join hands with me in the ring if i recollect half an hour of that and i'll agree miss eustacia regarded the youth steadfastly he was three years younger than herself but apparently not backward for his age half an hour of what she said though she guessed what holding your hands in mine she was silent make it a quarter of an hour she said yes miss eustacia i will if i may kiss it too a quarter of an hour i swear to do the best i can to let you take my place without anyone knowing don't you think someone will know your tongue miss it is possible but i will put a pebble in my mouth to make it less likely very well you shall be allowed to have my hand as soon as you bring the dress and your sword and staff i don't want you any longer now charlie departed and eustacia felt more and more interest in life here was something to do here was someone to see and a charmingly adventurous way to see him ah uh, she said to herself want of an object to live for that's all is the matter with me eustacia's manner was as a rule of a slumberous sort her passions being of the massive rather than the vivacious kind but when aroused she would make a dash which just for the time was not unlike the move of a naturally lively person on the question of recognition she was somewhat indifferent by the acting lads themselves she was not likely to be known with the guests who might be assembled she was hardly so secure 
Yet detection, after all, would be no such dreadful thing. The fact only could be detected. Her true motive, never. It would be instantly set down as the passing freak of a girl whose ways were already considered singular. That she was doing for an earnest reason what would most naturally be done in jest was, at any rate, a safe secret. The next evening Eustacia stood punctually at the fuel-house door, waiting for the dusk which was to bring Charlie with the trappings. Her grandfather was at home to-night, and she would be unable to ask her confederate indoors. He appeared on the dark ridge of Heathland, like a fly on a negro, bearing the articles with him, and came up breathless with his walk. "'Here are the things,' he whispered. "'And now, Miss Eustacia. "'The payment. It is quite ready.' I am as good as my word, placing them upon the threshold. She leant against the doorpost and gave him her hand. Charlie took it in both his own with a tenderness beyond description, unless it was like that of a child holding a captured sparrow. Why, there's a glove on it, he said in a deprecating way. I have been walking, she observed. But, miss— Well, it is hardly fair— she pulled off the glove and gave him her bare hand. They stood together minute after minute, without further speech, each looking at the blackening scene, and each thinking his or her own thoughts. "'I think I won't use it all up tonight,' said Charlie, devotedly, when six or eight minutes had been passed by him caressing her hand. "'May I have the other few minutes another time?' "'As you like,' she said, without the least emotion. "'But it must be over in a week.' now there is only one thing i want you to do to wait while i put on the dress and then to see if i do my part properly but let me look first indoors she vanished for a minute or two and went in her grandfather was safely asleep in his chair now then she said on returning walk down the garden a little way and when i am ready i'll call you charlie walked and waited and presently heard a soft whistle he returned to the fuel-house door. "'Did you whistle, Miss Vi?' "'Yes. Come in,' reached him in Eustacia's voice from a back quarter. "'I must not strike a light till the door is shut, or it may be seen shining. Push your hat into the hall through to the wash-house, if you can feel your way across.' Charlie did as commanded, and she struck the light, revealing herself to be changed in sex, brilliant in colours, and armed from top to toe. Perhaps she quailed a little under Charlie's vigorous gaze, but whether any shyness at her male attire appeared upon her countenance could not be seen by reason of the strips of ribbon which used to cover the face in mumming costumes, representing the barred visor of the medieval helmet. "'It fits pretty well,' she said, looking down at the white overalls. "'Except that the tunic, or whatever you call it, is long in the sleeve. The bottom of the overalls I can turn up inside. Now—' Pay attention. Eustacia then proceeded in her delivery, striking the sword against the staff or lance at the minatory phrases in the orthodox mumming manner, and strutting up and down. Charlie seasoned his admiration with criticism of the gentlest kind, for the touch of Eustacia's hand yet remained with him. And now for your excuse to the others, she said. Where do you meet before you go to Mrs. Yobright's? We thought a meeting here, miss, if you have nothing to say against it, at eight o'clock, so as to get there by nine. Yes. Well, you of course must not appear. I will march in about five minutes late, ready dressed, and tell them that you can't come. 
I have decided that the best plan will be for you to be sent somewhere by me, to make a real thing of the excuse. Our two heathcroppers are in the habit of straying into the meads, and to-morrow evening you can go and see if they are gone there. I'll manage the rest. Now you may leave me. Yes, miss, but I think I'll have one more minute of what I'm owed, if you don't mind. Stacia gave him her hand, as before. One minute, she said, and counted on till she reached seven or eight minutes. Hand and person she then withdrew to a distance of several feet, and recovered some of her old dignity. The contract completed, she raised between them a barrier impenetrable as a wall. There, tis all gone, and I didn't mean quite all he said with a sigh you had good measure she said turning away yes miss well tis over and now i'll get home along end of book two chapter four